and welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. We've been busy this summer. We've done a lot of things. It's been a very busy summer. And one of the things that we've mentioned obliquely on this show a few times is a recent trip to Milwaukee with some friends of ours. Yeah. So I thought for this episode... Milwaukee Day. Milwaukee Day was several days, in fact. (laughs) I thought for this episode we'd talk about... What what we learned and the places we went do do another first hand history episode. Cool. I better learn stuff I didn't learn on the trip. <laughs> Darling, the stakes are high on this. Yeah. Yeah. I you you will know most of this because you were there, but the people listening, this may be new to them. I expect to learn something. Well, you're not going to learn about how uh, Milwaukee was once called the German Athens of America, a name that makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's a little weird, because, like, Athens is, like, German. No, no, it's not. No sense whatsoever. We're not going to talk about how the the city was founded out of the uh, Milwaukee Bridge War of 1845. We're not? Because I want to know about that. Not going to talk about it at all, because we are focused on things that, that you and I and our dearest friends experienced for ourselves but i want to know about the bridge war everybody in the 1800s was out of their minds that's basically the summary did someone take out life insurance on the entire population (laughs) no no oh so instead we're going to start with our first experience which is not milwaukee itself no no it's getting there yes it is the dan ryan It is, uh, from our perspective, approaching from the south, going up Interstate 94, and before you get to Milwaukee, you go through Kenosha, and that means the Mars- Renaissance Festival! Well, yes, but immediately Uh, north, the Mars Cheese Castle. Oh, yeah, we did go there. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a cheese store, a cafe, a bar, a souvenir shop, and so much more- of a tourist track. Just north of, of the state line. Uh, it was founded in 1947 as a family business by one Mario Ventura Sr. Yeah. And Mario named the Mars Cheese Castle. Uh-huh. It is named Mars because that is the root of the name Mario. Oh. Okay. I have a question that I'm going to see if you answer for me. Okay. It is named Castle because his mother had previously owned a castle back in Italy. I thought it was just because it looked like a castle. It didn't back then. In oh. fact, the original building was an old schoolhouse that was abandoned, <laughs> and they bought. Cute. Uh, that's the, the site of that schoolhouse is now well below the I-94 interchange. Uh. <laughs> Not as in south, but like below, below. It is paved over. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought you meant. Like, mm-hmm. they built up and they, yeah. Now, Mario's children and their spouses and their children share duties running the store today. Mario Jr.'s previous job uh, before becoming, like, the, the general manager and, and main buyer of the Mars Cheese Castle was assistant district attorney for Kenosha County. Big job change. Yeah. (laughs) His first job was in the Cheese Castle, you know, sweeping up and whatnot. Yeah. But in between, he went off to law school, had a a real career of it, and now he's he's back to the family business. Now, that original building, that disused schoolhouse-turned-cheese shop, 
burned down in 1956. Oh. Uh, the second building uh, just kept growing with the business. It, it was a hodgepodge of expansions. Anytime they wanted to add a new line to the Cheese Castle and didn't have the square footage for it, they built out more. So it was this, this weird mishmash smoosh up of a place. Mm-hmm. Now, the third and current building, the only one to look like a castle. And boy, and do they make it look like a castle. Yes, but like, not as much as you would hope. <laughs> More than I expected with all of the the great oaken uh, banquet tables in the room that has all of the, the refrigerator magnets. Yes. And the, the suits of armor up behind whatever counter that was. I don't recall. Probably all cheese. But that opened in March 2011. What? Yes. Immediately prior to that, there was a project to widen I-94, and that meant bulldozing the intermediate, the middle cheese castle. Oh. Uh, so they, they moved a little bit to the side and took the opportunity to, to custom build a building suited to both their their brand, I guess, and all of their needs. Yeah. It is the last remaining cheese store of three that were once built at that intersection. That's a lot of cheese stores in one intersection. It was known as Wisconsin's most visible cheese interchange. (laughs) And uh, I'd hate to be Wisconsin's second most visible cheese interchange. Yeah. But even with only one cheese store, uh, it is pro- it probably still holds that title because of the 80-foot sign. It is a really big sign. It is among the biggest signs. You see, uh, Wisconsin has a state law limiting the size of signs for, you know, safety concerns and light pollution and etc., etc. Uh-huh. The Mars Cheese Castle had added to the annual appropriations bill a little amendment that that carved their sign out as an exception. <laughs> their logo was the very first paying job of, of George Pollard, who went on to become uh, Milwaukee's perhaps most successful homegrown uh, painter. He has a number of portraits and other pieces inside the Cheese Castle itself. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he's done portraits of popes and first ladies and senators. George Pollard got around. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to tell me why they use not Mars on their logo. And what do they use instead, dear? A planet with rings. You'd have to take that up with George Pollard, except he has sadly left us. Because that ain't Mars. It's not. It's It's really not. And I don't know why it's on there. We talked all about Mars on a recent episode of this show, and I didn't mention rings. No. Because they're not there. No, it it bugs me. It's very confusing. The patch we bought has it on there. Uh, I can't wait for that to go on our travel backpack. Yeah. 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 Right there with Iron Dragon (laughs) and the carousel from Six Flags. Mm -hmm. The double-decker carousel. Yes. Yeah, buddy. Uh, But the first attraction we saw in Milwaukee proper was the Pabst Milwaukee Brewery and their tour. This was good. This was very good. This, I, this was a not planned destination. No. A random Google search. A hey, let's go. I think and the it plan was great. Was, I think the plan was to do a brewery tour, and it's the nearest one that was open at the time. Like the specific time in the afternoon. Yeah. 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 
And it worked out really well for us. So let me tell you some of what they told us. It's a really good tour. I would recommend it to anybody in Milwaukee. It's very interesting. It's very quick. And I'm not going the to best steal. And I'm not going to steal all their information, but a lot of the more interesting stuff. It's it's ten bucks, and you get a lot of beer and a souvenir glass. It's essentially free for for you the should, things they give you. The tour is free. Just, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Pabst Brewery was founded by a man named Jacob Best in 1844, so it is older than the city of Milwaukee itself. Yeah. Not older than the village of Milwaukee, but. It, it's less fun to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he founded it as Empire Brewery. Then it was named Best and Company. Then the Philip Best Brewery. This is he a thing. He should have just called it the Best Brewery. <laughs> he missed an opportunity here. I think that was one of the many, many names somewhere in there. Better have been. Uh, Best immigrated to Milwaukee to join his four sons who were already living there. Uh, two of those sons then went into business on their own with the Plank Road Brewery, which became the first production facility of Miller Brewing. Ah. So anybody who enjoys any of, of Miller's various macro brews and all of their subsidiaries, that is a company that had its roots in Pabst. Ah. So the company grew and passed on to Philip Best, the, the son of Jacob, who renamed it Philip Best and Company in 1859. Ah. So after 14 years and practically as many names, uh, the brewery campus now covered several city blocks. Yeah. Big brewery. Uh, Frederick Pabst, meanwhile, had immigrated to Chicago from Germany as well at the age of 12 and decided, uh, you know, all, all of this odd jobbing, all these... Uh, uh, Waiter jobs, not going to do it for me. I really liked sailing here. I'm going to do that. So he decided to work as a cabin boy on a Lake Michigan steamer. Did he die tragically? No. Ugh. Because he got out of the business in time. Ugh. See, by the age of 21, he had his pilot's license, and he was a steamer captain. That's some gumption, let me tell you. Some of his passengers included Philip Best and his lovely daughter Maria. Frederick and Maria married in 1862. Aww. In 1863, Captain Pabst ran his ship aground in Milwaukee Harbor. Aww. So he decided to get out of that business and uh, buy half of his father-in-law's company for a real sweetheart deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Philip Best retired three years later, so the other half of the company was bought out by uh, his other daughter's husband. Uh -huh. So Pabst and his brother-in-law were the co-owners of Best & Co, or whatever it was called this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was called the Philip Best Empire Brewery. They were, they were trying a bit of a throwback thing. Yeah. But at that point, it was Milwaukee's largest and would soon be the largest brewery in the country. It's a lot of beer. It's a lot of beer. Uh, that growth came in part from Pabst from Pabst's business sense, Captain Pabst the man, uh, and a few lucky breaks. One of their major competitors in town died of a sudden infection. Uh-huh. And so they swept in and bought the company out from a under him. A sudden mysterious infection. Okay, are you also going to insinuate they caused the Great Chicago Fire? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Well, we know it wasn't the cow, maybe... 
Yeah. Maybe it was a spy from Captain Pabst. Yeah, it was. Definitely. So, the fire, uh, if you will recall... It burned everything. It left hundreds upon thousands, even millions of people homeless, but not dead. It did leave them very thirsty. Yes. And with no brew facilities in the city to speak of. Yeah. Huge market. So yes, those were some lucky breaks out of tragedy for them, but they could have been capitalized on by any other Milwaukee brewer. And in the case of the Chicago Fire, any St. Louis brewer, you know, there yeah. there were options. Yeah. But uh, it was Michigan ones that want to like hop on a steamship across Lake Michigan. Exactly. But it was Pabst that did it. Cool. Cool for them anyway. Their their brews were also pretty popular, uh, having won competitions around the world, starting with a gold medal at Philadelphia's Centennial Celebration in 1876, and then another gold medal at the Paris World's Fair of 1878. Uh, by the time it famously won the gold medal in Chicago's 1893 World's Fair, they were already buying a million feet of blue silk per year. <laughs> To tie around each bottle of best select lager. Why doesn't it come with ribbon now? <laughs> well, the ribbon stopped in uh, the First World War with rationing. They could bring it back, those cheapskates. You're getting ahead of me, dude. Okay. <laughs> the, the tale that is told that Pap's Blue Ribbon got its blue ribbon at the Chicago World's Fair is... Technically true, it did win first prize. Yeah. But they were already tying literal blue ribbons on it for years before. Yes. Because of many, many other prizes. Yes. But it is not long after that that they renamed Best Select Lager to Pabst Blue Ribbon in 1898. Yeah. So it, that, that brings that story slightly back into focus. Pabst's co-owner brother-in-law passed away in 1888, leaving uh, Captain Pabst clear to follow the, the great family tradition and rename the brewery after himself. Of course! That is when Pabst Brewery became Pabst Brewery. So, so the next major chapter is Prohibition, when business had to pivot. Yep. In between the renaming of the brewery and Prohibition, Papton, Papton Capst? Papton Caps. Captain Pabst died. <laughs> Oh. We're not going to talk that. We're going to talk about when nine out of ten or more American breweries died. Prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Captain Pabst had invested in real estate, theaters, hotels, resorts. Like, there were other lines of business to keep the company afloat as they found other things that they could use their facilities for. Mm -hmm. There was an income to put to work. That's good. So some of those things that they pivoted toward, selling malt syrup was very common among breweries. Uh, it is not illegal under prohibition. Recipes for how to turn malt syrup into beer in your very own home were also not illegal during prohibition. There were some problems with prohibition in case um, you haven't caught on. There were some loopholes. Yeah. Loopholes that weren't as popular as just buying it illegally. Yeah. Um, but you, you could DIY the whole thing. I think Prohibition's a great example of why making things illegal doesn't work. It's it's sort of the emblematic example that people go to, yeah. Eh, there's other things nowadays, but... <laughs> uh, they, they bought a soft drink company. They went into the root beer space. Nice. 
which actually has echoes in the future. Today, Pabst owns the company that brews Not Your Father's Root Beer. Ah. Yeah. Which is not a soft drink, no, but it is... that's an alcoholic It, it is a hard beer. root beer. There you go. I don't really like it. <laughs> I like the idea of it. I don't really like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing they did to keep afloat was lease part of their brewery space, their huge, massive campus, to neighbor company Harley-Davidson. Yeah. They could, they could use the space. Yeah. Yeah. Bikes aren't illegal. But their major new product during the 13 years of Prohibition was cheese. <laughs> of course, it's Wisconsin. Welcome to Milwaukee, folks. They sold over 8 million pounds of Papstit processed cheese. So like Velveeta. They aged it in their ice cellars. I didn't actually know you aged that shit. They did. But, okay. Back in the 20s. I don't, I don't know the process today, but it was part of the process then. <laughs> so once Prohibition was repealed and they, they could go back to the old stuff, uh, they, they didn't want to keep around all these side hustles. So the cheese line was sold off to another company named Kraft Foods. And you eat that still. So all your, your Kraft cheese has an ancestor in Pabst Brewery is, and, and Prohibition. Is this how American cheese became, like, came into existence? I'm not sure. They're they're cousins, at least. I'm gonna have to research that yeah, for absolutely. future episodes. Maybe I'll do an episode instead of like you know how I did office supplies on like random American food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds fun. That other people in other countries judge us for. So, it, 1933 saw an end to prohibition, a return to beer, a return to silk ribbons. Good. And in 1934, Pabst became the first major brewery to use cans. And why isn't there a blue ribbon tied around that can? It's, it's slide right off. Tie it along the little tab. <laughs> but Pabst became a publicly traded company, not a family business, which led to a lot of changes in how they ran things, and just generally a lot of changes as shareholders came and went, board members, CEOs, just a bit of a revolving door, not a lot of consistency. Silk is expensive. Cut that right, th right the heck out. Mm -hmm. No more actual ribbons. But in the long run, the most consistent thing is just selling the company off for parts. Mm -hmm. So since 1996, Pabst has been a virtual brewer. It, its great brew campus closed its doors in, in the mid-1990s. Uh, its recipes are contracted out to other breweries' production facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pabst Brewery campus is on the National Register of Historic Places, and developers have begun, well, redeveloping it. There, there's hotels, yes. there's a historic uh, tap room yeah. there that, that still has Best's name. And in 2017, Pabst itself opened a tap room in a building that was originally a German Methodist church. Yeah. But Captain Pabst himself bought it from the Methodists and added it to his holdings back in 1895. Yep. The company now owns it once again. Wasn't there something in the tour about how, like, they helped that, or he helped, or since then helped that Methodist church, like, set up a different church? Oh, yeah. He, he built him a new yeah. church, a, a new location. Like, they got a much better, cooler church. Yeah. <laughs> but this location, which is where the tap room is, is really cool. Yes. Uh, the lower level operates a small brewery. Today, it is primarily used as, as the Pabst Test Kitchen. Yeah. 
and it is therefore technically the only Pabst-owned facility that makes Pabst beers. Yes, they make they fill kegs there. Yeah, the, for kegs bars. only. Kegs only. They cannot bottle. <laughs> but as you go around the tour and, and it weaves in and out of the building a little bit, you can see their huge brick uh, grain silos from 150 Those years ago. Are so almost. cool. Ev- everything within that campus area is really neat. Mm-hmm. It's really really cool. Uh, on the main level in the tap room itself, they have nightly concerts and comedy shows. It's a pretty fun place, and like we said, the tour, very affordable. Yes. You you get your admission price back in, in free gifts. Yeah, they ain't making money on that. No. They make money on you buying more beer. Yes. <laughs> Which, you didn't mention it, one of the things that was really cool about what they make there is, like you said, it was a test kitchen, but part of what they do is make also historical recipes for beer, which is really neat. We tried a couple. They are making now things that haven't been made since before Prohibition. Yeah, that's really neat. Mm -hmm. They had two different ones um, on tap when we were there, and they were both really good. Yeah. And they were very different. People who like American corporate history and or beer drinkers, I would recommend this tour. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But the reason we went to Milwaukee in the first place mm-hmm. was so you and your, your dearest, bestest, oldest friend yes. could attend Summerfest, the world's largest music festival. To see the killers. Yes. Yeah. Specifically. That's why. Not just like, <laughs> we weren't just like, let's go to Summerfest. We were like, we're going to go see the killers. Who happened to be at Summerfest. Yes. Yes. Summerfest is 11 days on 12 stages, 800 plus acts mm-hmm. over a 75 acre festival ground. Yeah. It big. It's very freaking big. The world's largest I, music festival I, happens to be quite large. I, I didn't really realize quite how large it was. So that lakefront land, those 75 acres that are now known as Henry Mayer Festival Park, were originally an airstrip. Oh, That sounds familiar. And then when that airstrip closed, it became an army missile installation. (gasps) Darling. Yes? This is strangely, like, close to what happened over here with our airstrip that then became a missile area. There are missiles on North Italy Island? Uh, That thing I- article I said I came across that, like, talked about Cold War era- Missile silos through Chicago, and mm-hmm. some were down by MSI, and some were over by Northerly Island. Well, there you go. And some were, like, up by Montrose Harbor. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying... They're not there anymore. Yeah. But... Chicago's going to come up a lot in this episode. It already has. Yeah. The, the fact is, there are two cities that, that have similar histories. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee's a few decades younger, but, I mean... Uh, I mean, we also tore down an airstrip to put up mm-hmm. a concert venue. So, some of these <laughs> things are surprisingly similar, but the broad swaths, it's just the history of what we transit do. hubs yes. in, in the the Great Lakes region. I, yes, I know. Yeah. I just thought it was funny. It is funny. But back to, to my bullet points, back to my outline. Okay. The very place where this year Foghat and Los Lonely Boys played together. Well, not together. They were on separate days. Was once home to the Nike Hercules nuclear-capable missile. Yep. Yes. Uh, there were eight missile fields in the greater Milwaukee area. The, the lakefront there was merely one of them. Yes. So the first Summerfest was held in 1968. We, we just missed its 50th year. Yeah. 
Happy 51st, Summerfest. Uh, held at 35 sites in and through and around the city. Oh. For 1970, they decided that that's just not going to cut it anymore. We want a single, large, permanent site. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Harbor Commission had just taken possession of the lakefront back from the U.S. Army and were like, hey, that suits us fine. We will lease it to the Summerfest Committee for $1 per year. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So headliners play at the American Family Insurance Amphitheater, originally named the Marcus Amphitheater. It's really big. It is big. It it has a capacity of 23,000 people. Uh, It was built in 1987 with expansion plans set for completion for next year's Summerfest. There were a lot of signs about that. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I didn't go to this part, so you'll, you'll have to tell me all about it. They could use more bathrooms. Hopefully that's part of it. Yeah. Plans for the amphitheater were drawn up after Huey Lewis and the News brought a, brought a crowd of 30,000 people to a venue meant for 15,000. Ooh. Uh, the, the site, though, hosts all sorts of events on the other 354 days of the year, and all of the notable ones have fest in their name. It's Popular. A, it's a branding thing. Yeah. You've got your Irish fest, your Italian fest. Rib fest, probably. Pride fest uses the grounds. Yeah. yeah. So, how did you enjoy your Summerfest experience? Um, well. Or your concert near a bunch of other concerts experience, I think is more how you two did it. Yes, because we got dropped off at the entrance closest to the venue. You're welcome. Went in and then went out and walked all the way back to our hotel. Yeah. But how, how but did not you... within Summerfest. It was great. Yeah. The crowd was amazing. It was like a wonderful atmosphere for a show. Even with there needing more bathrooms, I was pleasantly surprised by that like theater. <laughs> that was really nice. It's much better than a lot of other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a giant floating unicorn out on the lagoon. Ooh. That was cool. Very pretty views from like up top of the theater. That's about all I got. Nice. There, I didn't really experience anything else with it other than... Um, we were really mistaken that we thought we could get an Uber out of there. Yeah. <laughs> we quickly realized there's no way that was going to happen. Just too too many people. We also had no idea where the Uber pickup station uh, was. We could not figure it out. There uh, were so many conflicting signs. 75 acres. We could just, be anywhere. We just kept walking. Yeah. Uh, so the next thing we went to, the very next morning, was the Milwaukee Public Museum. A museum of natural and human history, and home to Wisconsin's first dome theater, where we saw a show. Yes, we saw Big Bird One Sky. Yes. And our little goddaughter was very pissed off about where'd Big Bird go? Big Bird sort of pieces out and lets Elmo take over for the middle part of the show. And she was not having that. Where, she was where Big Bird. She was promised Big Bird. <laughs> We just kept telling her we were going to see Big Bird, and Big Bird's there for five minutes, and then leaves. For eight minutes, and comes back for the last five. Like, there was plenty of Big Bird. For a toddler, that's her entire life. (laughs) She grew three teeth in that time. Uh, But the museum was chartered in 1882 from what had become a massive collection of artifacts collected by students at the German English Academy over their field trips. They would go out into the field and find cool things and bring them back to the school. A rock! Yeah, especially cool rock. And dirt. A worm! It's a field. 
Love you, dear. <laughs> it took you far too long to realize what I was doing. Rocks, dirt, and worms are all f- valid fields of study yes. in a museum of natural history. <laughs> yes, but... The, the first building, completed in 1898, is now home to the Milwaukee Public Library. The current building, where we went, is a block away, and it was built in uh, 1962. Yeah. Carl Akeley, a name dear to my heart, father of modern taxidermy. Yes. And famous in our home as uh, a founding collector for Chicago's Field Museum, worked for the Milwaukee Public Museum first. <gasps> It was founded first, after all. Fine. <laughs> now, their muskrat diorama is the first complete museum habitat diorama in the world. What? Why didn't they have a plaque about that? They might have, but again... <laughs> Toddler speed. <laughs> we, the fastest way through a museum <laughs> is to take a very curious toddler... <laughs> Because they will want to look at all of the cool things, but they will not stop to read the signs because they do not know how. <laughs> so they're just like, You'll over just here! Go! Over here! Over here! And you just keep going! <laughs> I read no signs. But that is that is one of the things that makes Carl Akeley such an uh, uh, important landmark figure in preservation of, of you know, the science of wildlife study. He invented the museum habitat diorama. Yeah. And gave it to Milwaukee. There you go. Yeah. Now, the first new exhibit to debut in the new building, so the first permanent exhibit created after 1962, was the Streets of Old Milwaukee. Uh, It's essentially a walkthrough diorama showing Milwaukee as it was at the dawn of the 20th century. It is full of legitimate, actual artifacts. And a bit of other time frame. I feel like the time frame is a little farther. Are you being fuzzy with the adjoining uh, uh, exhibit, the European Village? Oh, I thought they were the same thing. No, no, no. Oh, because I was going to be like, that stuff wasn't 20th century. Yeah, there, there is a similar exhibit, a similar walkthrough diorama that it adjoins that has homes built in the style of a few dozen uh, uh, European nations and cultures. That was something. Yeah. The, so, this, like, this... Those types of things exist at many museums. Yes. What other museums don't do is put really creepy looking children mm-hmm. in windows staring at you. The streets of old Milwaukee is cool, though, because so much of it is original artifacts from the dawn of the 20th century. Yes. A, a lot of Milwaukee companies that, that had their starts there, like a... The, the big lumber company and another one of the major breweries donated big chunks of their old buildings to be installed in the streets of old Milwaukee. Yes. It's very, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't need to go all children of the corn. No, no. There, there is also a taxidermied uh, cat that was added in its 50th anniversary expansion and refurbishment. Yeah. And if you walk past the cat, that is, like, hidden up in the rafters, you'll hear a meowing sound. And if you look and find it, you'll see it looking at you. And if you look with, like, your phone's flashlight, they did a thing to the glass taxidermy eye to reflect back at you like an actual cat's eye. Yeah. Which is pretty cool and weird. (laughs) I think my uh, standout creepy children were, like, the two that were up on, like, a second story Mm -hmm. that you didn't see first. That's in the European village. 
yeah. to be fair. Okay, but they also had those on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I remember there was like a window that our godchild really wanted to look in, and she's, you know, two. So I had to lift her up, and I didn't look inside the window until I lifted her up. And there was just this, like, really freaking little child with a creepy, creepy doll. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, it is also home to a few old-timey shops that you can actually shop at we for souvenirs. Candies. We have candy sticks that we still have not eaten. We can eat those. We should eat those. It's not like they're going to go bad, but, I mean, candy sticks are good. We should yeah. eat those. Yeah. I got tutti frutti. <laughs> uh, another classic uh, part of their permanent exhibitions is The Third Planet the first museum hall in North America to present plate tectonics as a central theme. Ooh. Uh, and its diorama of a T-Rex feeding on a triceratops was the world's first to recreate life-size dinosaur models in their habitat. Uh-huh. That's another room we didn't spend much time in because they make it very scary. Yep. Too scary for baby. You spent more time in it than I did. Yes. Well, I'm not a baby. You you were ushering the little one. I, I was g- carrying the other one and distracting her with fancy head movements. But, I would like to go back to this museum and maybe look around a bit more. <laughs> Kneel at the altar of Carl Akeley. Yes. Yeah. With that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with uh, the, the next day's events. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Hello! I told a little fib at the end of the last segment. Yeah. We are not moving on to the next day. We are moving on to that afternoon. Yes, it's it gets very confusing when you have to pause for a multi-hour nap. Yes. We've so, never traveled this way before in our life. No. <laughs> so the, the later in the day, after exploring the Milwaukee Public Museum, we did the thing you're supposed to do in a Great Lakes travel hub city. Take the architectural boat tour. Yeah. And this is where we learned about Cream City Brick. Yes. Now, there is a distinctive pale yellow brick that is fired from clay only found in the Menominee River Valley. Yes. When it is fired, it takes on this pale yellow color due to the the clay's high uh, lime, sulfur, and magnesia content. Mm Mm-hmm. After testing, because, like, it's yellow. Something clearly must have went wrong. After getting over that initial hesitance and, and trying it out, they found that it was stronger than red brick. Yeah. Nice. That's cool. However, it is also a lot more porous. So as you go down the, the riverfront, you'll see a lot of older, unrestored buildings showing a hundred years and more of air pollution. Yeah. Those bricks aren't very cream-colored anymore. No. Not, not on, like, the industrial buildings, at, at least. There's a lot of civic pride in Milwaukee, I feel like, and part of that extends to the brick as, like, a, this distinctive symbol of Milwaukee. Yeah. So inhabited buildings are like, yeah, let's, let's scrub that up. Let's find a way to restore it. Abandoned industrial zones? No. It, it's... No. <laughs> But it didn't just stay in Milwaukee. This this very durable, very uh, unique-looking brick was exported all over the world. In fact, we've talked about a Cream City brick building before mm-hmm. in our very first episode. 
Yeah. Old Mackinac Point Light is made of Cream City brick. Oh. Yeah. Now, we were on a boat sailing a river. On a boat. So we had to get around the bridges. The bridges so had to move. Many. I was so confused about the bridges. In fact, Milwaukee has 21 movable bridges. And they move in all different ways. They move in two different ways. Just two. They have bascule bridges, which are familiar. They're kind of everywhere with uh, movable bridges. They're the ones that rotate up like levers. Uh-huh. But they also have vertical lift bridges or table lift bridges. Mm-hmm. Where the road surface just goes straight up. They also have the ones that like... The, the count of 21 is those managed by the city of Milwaukee. Uh... And the rail bridges are either abandoned and or owned by the rail companies. Gotcha. Yes. These bridges, when we went under them, the vertical lift bridges, yes. they blew your mind. I've never seen a bridge like that before. And there are very few places on this lovely earth where you could. But if you are in Milwaukee and you want to go down the river walk to, or on a boat to see them from below, or just stay on the streets and watch them rise before your very eyes. It's crazy. It won't take you long to see it happen. Uh, you see... According to city regulations, since the river was there first, river traffic gets right-of-way in in all cases. In the year 2015, the bridges opened a total of 21,835 times. That's a lot of times. It's a lot of times. I mean, we were there, like, by the river for, like, four hours, and I swear it opened, like, 20 times. I mean, our boat alone went under four or five each direction. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's another bridge I'd like to speak about that does not move, the Hohen Bridge. It doesn't have to, though, because it lists six lanes of interstate highway 120 feet above the river. It's crazy. If there is a boat that tall, I would hate to see it. Also, it would surely run aground before it got to the harbor. Bridge is crazy. It was built between 1970 and 1972 as part of the I-794 Highway Spur, Uh, which was to connect downtown, the lakefront, the port of Milwaukee, and the southeast suburbs. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 1960s, there was a lot of freeway expansion. Uh, Milwaukee laid 10 miles of freeway per year. But in order to do that, they demolished 6,000 homes over the decade. So by the time the 1970s rolled around, there was a lot of resistance to doing any more. That's something that a lot of people forget. About highways going into cities. Mm-hmm. It's a major factor of segregation. Yes. Displacement. Displacement. Usually poorer populations. Yes. I should just do that episode. And at yeah. least one third of it will be yelling at the University of Chicago. Yes. Yes. You can talk about that one church that they did take the expressway around, though, mm-hmm. here in Chicago. So there's a really random curve. Mm-hmm. But yes, this plan to build 794 would require displacing even more people. The the bridge, though, wouldn't. The bridge was being put on uh, already state-owned land. Mm -hmm. So that's why it went right up without much of a thought. However, neighborhood groups were petitioning and protesting and delaying construction however they could. So the bridge just sat alone and unconnected for five years until people could drive on it in 1977. So in that time, it got the nickname The Bridge to Nowhere. Mm -hmm. 
it wasn't just this bizarre public monument to, to infrastructure. It was an opportunity, you might say. Uh, it was the site of the Blues Brothers car chase scene. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't have to worry about closing down a highway when there's already one closed and waiting. Yeah. There you go. Just film it there. Now, the, the Hohen Bridge is named for Daniel Hohen, who served as Milwaukee's mayor for 24 years in the early 20th century. During his mayoralty, he created a public housing program. He began municipal ownership of the stone quarry and sewage and water, and water purification system. He instated the first public bus system in the U.S. Okay. to replace streetcars that kept running people over. And this is interesting because they just opened a new streetcar this year. Yes. Let's hope it's better than the old one. Uh, Daniel Hohen is ranked by historians who rank such things as the eighth best mayor in United States history. Oh. Uh, his, his mayorship is also the longest serving socialist administration in American history. Yet. <laughs> the number to beat is 24 years, people. And if I remember from the tour, he hates the bridge. He was dead before the bridge. Oh, he was dead before. Okay. He hates the idea of naming things after politicians. That's what it was. Yes. Okay. I will say one thing that with... I, th I think he died in 1960 or yeah. thereabout, but yeah. So this like giant bridge and this like, you know, lifted highway mm -hmm. system that goes through Milwaukee, which goes directly over Summerfest. Yes. And much of the downtown area. One thing that my friend and I pointed out to each other as we were walking back at like midnight was how well lit and used <laughs> the space yes. under it is. Mm -hmm. It's parking lots, it's businesses, and it's all lit. And I felt completely safe under a highway, something I never feel in Chicago. I imagine a lot of that is due to Summerfest itself. Yes. And something we're going to be talking about in a couple topics. Okay. Yes. Well, I was going to say like, even as we got far away mm -hmm. from it, I was mm -hmm. like, this is actually still, like, pretty good. <laughs> and Milwaukee is incredibly proud of their water purification system. Yeah. We learned that on the tour. I, again, I'm not sharing everything we learned on the boat tour. It was, it was a, a very, really good time. It was like a three-hour boat tour. So. I don't want to eat their lunch, but I do want to talk about one more thing we learned. Yeah. My favorite thing we saw on this boat <laughs> yeah. was Nicolas Cage's former boat. Yes, we did see that. Oscar-winning actor Nicolas Cage mm -hmm. had a real spending problem in the mid-2000s. Yeah. And that led to a lot of debt that he's still trying to pay off, including millions of dollars of back taxes. Ooh. Now, this included property taxes on many of his 18 personal residences. Why do you need 18? At, at least, you know, the ones in the U.S. The, the IRS doesn't care about the two count them two European castles. You have two castles. You don't need 18 other properties. Open two, a cheese castle if you eat anything. Castles? Come on. Uh, what if there was the Nicolas Cage cheese castle? I would buy my cheese there. Uh, All the cheese curds. One of his American residences was the Lurie Mansion in New Orleans, the most haunted building in America. Ooh. One of several to claim the title, but it's New Orleans. I think that yeah, one that yeah. one wins. 
his first step in 2007 after being hit with this tax bill was to sue his business manager, Samuel Levin, for failing to pay the taxes as business manager uh, and also advising him to make risky speculative real estate deals. Yeah. Levin countersued, alleging, quote, Levin advised Coppola. Remember, Nicolas Cage's real last name is Coppola. He's the only member of the Coppola family to not work in Hollywood under the name. I always forget that. And every time I relearn it, it shocks me. Yes. Which is why I think he's the most honorable Coppola. He wanted to do it (laughs) at least somewhat on his own two feet. Uh, But yes, Levin advised Coppola against buying a Gulfstream jet, against buying and owning a flotilla of yachts, against buying and owning a squadron of Rolls Royces, against buying millions of dollars in jewelry and art. Goodness. (laughs) Whose idea was what is a major contention between the suit and countersuit. But since then, Nicolas Cage has been hard at work trying to pay off his debts uh, with two strategies. The first, taking any film role that is offered to him. And second, selling whatever he can find a buyer for at whatever price he they are willing to give. Yeah. He's taking a loss on a lot of this stuff. Perhaps the biggest loss by a percentage is the dinosaur skull that he returned free of charge to the, the Mongolian government once uh, it, he discovered that it was stolen before he bought it at auction. It, it, it was not an honorably sourced dinosaur skull. People can just buy dinosaur skulls you think this is just a wow nicholas cage is so wacky story until you learn the person he beat the second highest bidder at that auction leonardo dicaprio what yes what but one of those fire sale assets is a 138 foot yacht part of this fleet of yachts that went to the owner of sandals resorts was renamed the Lady Sandals and was docked, at least for that day, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, it was. So I offhandedly mentioned the Riverwalk a few minutes ago. Yes. This is uh, a walking path along the river, naturally, through downtown Milwaukee, connecting a few neighborhoods. It's scenic, it's lovely, and it is full of public art installations. Yes. And we took a walk by two in particular that I wanted to see. Yes, one of these was my, like, if I had a bucket list, it'd be on my bucket list. Yeah. Yes. Well, first we saw Gertie the Duck. It's not that one. No. (laughs) Gertie was a real duck. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Who, in 1945, was spotted by a newspaper editor uh, watching over nine eggs beneath the Wisconsin Avenue Bridge. And so this, this writer, in his column, would just give duck updates. Yeah. And people read about the duck, and then people came on their commutes to like, oh, I see the duck. It Look, it's Gertie. There she is. Gertie got a lot of Mother's Day cards in 1945. They just write the address of that spot on the bridge? Some probably like went to, to like the bridge. Some may have went to this newspaper guy, like, to Gertie, care of you sort of thing. Okay. Six of the eggs hatched. And five of those babies survived a rough year of flood and storms and a fire. Oh, goodness. Uh, But then Gertie and and her ducklings were put on display in Gimbel's department store's windows. That's weird. Come see the famous ducks and shop at Gimbel's. That's weird. Leave the ducks alone. (laughs) Over two million people did come to see them 
And I would imagine at least one million then shopped at Gimbal's. What? Did they let the ducks go? I don't know about the ultimate fate of Gertie and the ducks. Aww. The ducks were featured in Life magazine, among many other magazines, books, a TV adaptation on, on the uh, anthology series G.E. True, and the and a very popular post-war children's toy. You, you could buy your own Gertie the Duck. Is it that toy that then had all the little ducklings that would follow and you pull I, the string? I think that's a Gertie, or like oh. inspired by the Gertie. Yeah. Yeah. So the bronze statues of Gertie and her five ducklings are installed on and across the Wisconsin Avenue Bridge in 1997. I want to know what happened. They're very cute. They are very cute. But a few blocks north yes. is maybe the most famous bit of art in uh, Milwaukee, which is odd considering they have a highly regarded art institute that we didn't get to go to on this trip. But if we go back, I, I really want to go to the art museum. This this was all worth it. But what we did see was the Bronze Fonz. In the late 1990s, then-cable network TV Land decided to promote their shows by commissioning bronze statues of classic television characters and installing them where their shows were set. If you ever visit Minneapolis and see the Mary Tyler Moore statue, TV Land did that. I didn't know there was a Mary Tyler Moore statue. Mm-hmm. But Fonzie's not one of those. No. That plan ended before they got down to Happy Days on the list. Yeah. Instead, a, a nonprofit tourist advocacy group called Visit Milwaukee uh, uh, took up the mantle, took up the charge to make a, a permanent bronze statue of Henry Winkler as the Fonz. Yes. Yes, they did. And install it somewhere in, in scenic Milwaukee. Because, of course, Happy Days is set in Milwaukee. Yeah. So is Laverne and Shirley and probably a few other of Happy Days' 40 spinoffs. Yeah. That show would just never die. I know. So donors raised over $85,000. These days you can get a three-bedroom house in Milwaukee for, for that sort of change. Dang, let's move to Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were some opponents of the plan. Some people who just thought it was kitschy or just plain bad art, uh, like the CEO of the Milwaukee Art Museum, uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's art critic, and some others in the art scene. Uh, but none were more outspoken than Mike Brennan, head of the Milwaukee Artist Resource Network, or yeah. MARN. Brennan sent a mass email to the city's media outlets that he would close his gallery and leave the city if a statue of Arthur Herbert Fonzarelli were to be erected downtown. <laughs> Brenner also wrote that he would, quote, close all of his accounts with J.P. Morgan Chase, since J.P. Morgan Chase has the largest corporate art collection in the U.S., and if they will stand for this, and the people of Milwaukee will stand for this, I need to leave Milwaukee. Goodness. All this dust-up reached a bit of a compromise. The statue would be put on its current site along the Riverwalk at Wells Street. It was Instead of where? In, instead of in a major oh, downtown okay. intersection. I mean, that's... Still pretty major. It's well accessible. Yes. Yes. It was unveiled on August 18th, 2008. Happy birthday, Bronzy. <laughs> in a ceremony that featured all the main Happy Days cast except Ron Howard. 
He was probably pretty busy working on Frost Nixon that day, I yeah. guess. Henry Winkler at the ceremony called the statue, quote, unbelievable, which is uh, an adjective that could be taken several ways. Yes. I would call it uncanny, an adjective that can be taken several ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the end, Brenner closed his art gallery that year for unrelated reasons. He closed it in order to uh, spend six years trying to open a microbrewery, which then also closed after three years of operation. Oh. The, the story of Mike Brennan is, is an infamous one in Milwaukee lore. Uh, we finished our trip with brunch the next morning at a place I cannot recall the name, but it was nice. It was... We ordered a pound of bacon for the table. That's but a it was, thing on the menu but there. But it was more like three pounds of bacon for the table. And we had to take it home because everything else was huge. It was so big and so good. I had creme brulee French toast. Uh, and I don't really, even really care about French toast that much. And that, like, I dream of that French toast. <laughs> but uh, this uh, brunch place that was in a, a converted warehouse built with cream city brick, was in the historic Third Ward, a place with its own share of disasters, you'll be happy to know, dear. Yes, yes, yes. I perked up on the tour when they talked about these. In September 1860, about 300 of the finest citizens of the Third Ward departed Milwaukee on a steamer named Lady Elgin to hear Stephen A. Douglas speak in Chicago as he ran against Abraham Lincoln for the United States presidency. Is it Elgin or Elgin? I don't know. I always thought it was Lady Elgin. I could ask her, but she sank. Spoilers, I guess. Uh, on the return trip, September 8th, the Lady Elgin was rammed by a schooner that pushed the deck below water. This was a few years before uh, the law required you have running lights at night. Oh, yeah. Especially at night during a gale. Yeah. It was a, it was a rough time. Uh, when they separated, the schooner left and continued on to Chicago, sure that the much larger steamer uh, didn't have any serious damage, much like the schooner didn't. Mm -hmm. They were wrong. Uh <laughs> Meanwhile, the Lady Elgin's crew was throwing everything they could overboard to, to run lighter and trying to fill up the hole in the hull with mattresses. <laughs> the captain worked all night to save as many souls as he could. By daybreak, between 350 and 400 people were clinging to floating wreckage. 18 people were brought to shore in the side boats, another 14 on an improvised raft. Uh, there was a German band on board for uh, these political-minded Irish folk, and the drummer of the band survived by floating on his big bass drum. Goodness. Northwestern University and Garrett uh, Seminary students watched for survivors from the shore. Uh, one such student saved 17 people, making trips out in the water over six hours. Dang. In the end, 98 people were saved, and an unknown number in the neighborhood of 300 were lost. The manifest, with its exact count, sank with the ship. Oh. The sinking was the Great Lakes' greatest loss of life in open water. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the Eastland on the dock. Yeah. I was, I was waiting for you to... Oh, I thought you were just going to tell me. <laughs> You're supposed to tell me about that. It was your episode. Didn't you learn anything from it? Now I've learned to not expect you to finish my sentences. That's exactly. what I've learned. Exactly. 
Don't uh, put expectations on me. Okay. I'm an independent woman. Uh, <laughs> there were initial reports that over 1,000 children were orphaned, which is obviously an inflated number, and it makes me wonder if that came from, like, anti-Irish stereotypes? Yeah, that's a lot of kids per person. Because if you assume 300 dead people, maximum 150 couples... We're talking six and two-thirds children per couple. And like, okay, maybe we've got some single parents on the boat. But like, there are certainly childless people on the boat. So I guess that evens out. I feel like, Yeah, because yeah, like, even if it wasn't couples and it was just all the men, like... They'd still it, have moms they and they be wouldn't orphaned. be orphaned. Yeah. Research shows that there were... Uh, children left orphaned by this wreck, but the number is closer to 40. That makes more sense. It makes it makes a more sad kind of sense. Uh, as a hanger-on effect, this decimated the power block of the Third Ward, and the German neighborhoods became dominant in Milwaukee politics from then on. Yeah. In 1892, the uh, uh, recovering Third Ward... Uh, was set ablaze by a fire that started in a paint factory and quickly spread throughout. In one night, 440 buildings were destroyed, leaving 2,500 people homeless and about $85 million in property damage. Thankfully, only five dead, three of which uh, in a from a wall that collapsed on them during a rescue. Two of those three were firemen. Two people succumbed to their heart conditions during the fire. Oh. Most of these buildings, a great massive majority of these buildings, did not have fire insurance. And they did not have cash reserves to rebuild. And city businesses are looking at this lakefront property with all of its uh, infrastructure and saying, actually, that'd be way better as a warehouse district and not houses. So these 2,500 homeless people are not getting support from their city. Oh, no. So they scattered they, they moved throughout uh, different neighborhoods and suburbs, and some were like, well, the Milwaukee metro area is not for me. I'm going to ride the rails until I find another place. Yeah. The Third Ward's next block of settlers were a wave of Italian immigrants who did use that infrastructure for grocery warehouses. Mm-hmm. It became a huge, not just warehouse district, but also grocery district. There were also two pasta factories in the Third Ward. As you go through the Third Ward today, uh, there's a very regular uh, style of architecture. Uh, It's because the old buildings were erected very, very quickly for this new warehouse district. Yeah. Just like basically rubber stamped carbon copies of one another. Yes. Uh, And the new buildings uh, that have been built as part of this district renewal, trying to build a a mixed-use Uh, artistic neighborhood with galleries and theaters and fancy but giant portion brunch places. Mm -hmm. New buildings are trying to match that old style to to make this cohesive, you know, urban oasis look they're going for. Yeah. The reason that this cosmopolitan neighborhood is is growing now and was vacant between uh, uh, the Italian wave of immigration and uh, the 1990s. Yes. Is I-794. That makes sense. <laughs> That's where a lot of the clearance had to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess with that callback, that brings us full circle. And again, to, to the end of our short trip, the framing story for this story. 
Yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? I have learned that I am annoyed that Paps does not tie a ribbon. Mm-hmm. That Nicolas Cage had a dinosaur skull. Mm-hmm. A stolen skull. He didn't steal it, but it was stolen before it got to him. Uh, yeah. Okay. Those are good things <laughs> to learn. If you learn anything from this episode, learn about Nicolas Cage's dinosaur skull. What the hell? I want to be rich enough that I can buy a dinosaur skull. You know what makes me sad about Nicolas Cage's debt? Hmm. One of the few things that he sold for more than he bought it for uh-huh. is a copy of Action Comics number one. Yeah. And it makes me so sad that Nicolas Cage had to sell that off because he's the world's biggest fan of Superman. He named his son Kal-El. He did. And he had to sell Action Comics number one? My what? heart breaks for the man. Does, does his son go by Cage or Coppola? I don't know. Because, like, Kal-El Coppola is a lot. Kal-El with any surname is a lot. Yes. <laughs> I hope he just goes by Cal. Yes, it's short for Kelvin. Thank you. And with that, we're going to take another break and be back with letters. What if he really wanted to name his child Kelvin and, like, the person writing down the names just, like, kind of zoned out uh-huh. and got to... How do you spell that? Well, it's Cal... L Vin. But they just left off the Vin. His doula is the real Superman fan. It could have been done on purpose or not. I mean Welcome back everybody. Hello! I promise we really did take a break. She she wasn't talking the whole time. Just most of the time. Anyway, okay. I'm in trouble, so you should read a letter. <laughs> Uh, so Hannah writes in uh, and shares that uh, they got a new puppy. A new puppy! Named Cookie. Oh, Cookie. Cookie is a two-month-old black lab mix, and we saw some very cute pictures. I love Cookie. Uh, Hannah also uh, shares that she and her sister have been enjoying our podcast on long car rides uh, because they're they're parents travel for renaissance fairs which is pretty cool (laughs) i know a lot of people who work for renaissance fairs actually depending on the fair they may also be familiar with the mars cheese castle we might have like a three degree of separation going on so you know (laughs) also hello to hannah's sister emmy hi Hi, Emmy. emmy thanks for listening too sorry i said hi to the dog first they also answer uh, some prompts for favorite cheese. Uh, Hannah goes with provolone for sandwiches, but uh, Same. ricotta because it's so versatile in other dishes. That's very true. And Emmy uh, wants it to be known that Kraft mac and cheese is the best. Hannah gave some sass about this, but quite oh. frankly, I am a very big fan of the blue box. So don't hate <laughs> on that mac and cheese. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like put it in the cheese category, but that is a delicious cheese-inspired dish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and then for favorite circus act, uh, Hannah goes with Emmett Kelly, who is a cr- clown for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he retired in the fifties, but continued to act, and then died in the seventies. His persona was a sad clown named Weary Willie. Uh, and he is in part famous for helping put out the 1944 Hartford Circus Fire. 
so many circus tragedies to talk about. <laughs> uh, Hannah's grandpa actually used to live uh, in the same area as Emmett Kelly and would get his mail a lot. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and Emmy would like to share that her favorite circus act is anything with dogs or elephants or horses and does not like the acrobats because she's scared that they might fall, okay. which is a valid reason. Yeah, yeah. So thank you guys for writing in and thank you for your letter. Yeah, it's so nice to hear about your grandpa's number neighbor. Yeah. Except actual neighbor. Yeah, that's yeah. that's how it used to work was you had to return the mail. <laughs> yeah. It's like when I found your your new Gundam package today, and I was like, what if it was actually someone else, though? And you, like, (laughs) hand-delivered them their Gundam box and made a buddy. I got a real great unicorn in the mail, and I'm happy and excited. You were pretty excited about the idea of someone else in this building, though, maybe building Gundams. Yes, that would be fun. That would be serendipitous. I would never see my husband again. That's not true. I have to be here to edit Six Feet Under things. (laughs) Peter writes in and wants to talk about the prompt for this episode, which was favorite cheese. Peter's going to stick with the classic Stilton, a nice plain blue, uh, soft but not too soft, good and crumbly, nice and sharp. Peter's got some cheese opinions. I got cheese opinions. Of course, Peter's favorite cheese story is the English cheese Limeswald, or, or less commonly known as Westminster Blue. There's this thing called the Milk Marketing Board, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like, a group uh, of private producers that would buy up milk as a buyer of last resort, uh, meaning that British dairy farmers had a guaranteed minimum price for their produce. Good deal for them. Of course, that uh, board wound up with a lot of milk that they couldn't do anything with, and it just spoiled. That's very bad. So they decided to make a brand new variety of cheese, a quintessentially British cheese that would be inspired by French cheese, but uh, without being so runny or strong smelling or French, actually. Uh, (laughs) So the name Limeswald uh, comes from a public uh, uh, contest to do the naming, and it won because it sounds so very English even though there is no such place or person as a Limeswald. <laughs> Too bad the cheese isn't very good. It's not yeah. bad. It's just not good. <laughs> it's, it ceased production in 1992. Peter also provides a pair of cheese jokes. Oh! Hey, darling, what type of cheese can you use to disguise a horse? I don't know. Marscapone. <laughs> uh-huh. What type of cheese is always glad to see itself in a mirror? What? Hello, me. (laughs) And there's also a show suggestion that he notes is specifically up your alley, dear. Hello, me. Thank you, Peter. We'll be here all night with us. That's good. Uh, Isaac writes in and shares that they did not listen to our last episode. What? Huh? Isaac? What? Huh? what? Why didn't Isaac want to listen to our last episode? He's not a big circus guy. Isaac, the title is Trainwrecks of 1918 Part 2. Talk about... It's very little about a circus, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, and then their favorite cheese is Pepper Jack, uh, which they just learned was originally ba- made by monks in Monterey, California. 
and sold by a man named David Jack. So it became so it became known as Jack's Cheese and eventually Monterey Jack. Yeah, that's cool. But like Pepper Jack is different than Monterey Jack. Yeah, it's when you put peppers in it. Okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, and Isaac shares a picture of their cat, Morgan True. That is such a beautiful it's name a, for a cat. It's a very beautiful cat. That's true. It's a, it's a pretty kitty. So thank you, Isaac. Thank you very much. For making me question what we did wrong. Speaking of cats, we have a letter from one fine cat who has a laundry list of prompts to catch up on. They have no specific favorite train, but uh, their favorite train system uh, a train propulsion is the maglev train. Mm. Uh, their favorite cheese is blue cheese, uh, followed closely by extra sharp cheddar. Nobody's named a bad cheese yet. I'm down with all I'm these. not really a fan of blue cheese. It's got visible mold. More for me. Not okay with that. And their favorite fringe group is the uh, Sabbateans, or, or the followers of uh, Shabbatai Tzvi. Shabbatai Zvi was born in the Ottoman Empire in 1626 and came to believe that he was the Messiah and a massive number of followers who agreed with them, but he didn't proclaim it publicly uh, for a number of years until he met Nathan of Gaza. Now, Nathan was a pretty well-known theologian and spiritual physician. Uh, love to see that on somebody's business card. You, you never know what you're going to wind up with. Uh, and Zvi sought him out to cure his delusions. But Nathan had been having prophetic visions on his own that a man would come to him believing himself to be the Messiah and that that man would be correct. So between the two of them, they convinced themselves and Zvi came out publicly. Mm -hmm. His following grew a bunch. Uh, so the Sabbateans butted heads with establishment Judaism, Obviously. Yeah. I mean, the, the one guy a lot of people believe was the Messiah, same thing happened to him. Uh, but the, the Sabbateans specifically violated a lot of Talmudic strictures. They treated Svi's birthday as a day of celebration, even though it happened to fall on uh, Tisha B'Av, the day that marks the destruction of the first and second temples. Traditionally, the saddest day in the entire calendar. But mm -hmm. they, they wanted it to be party time because it's now it's the Messiah's birthday, mm -hmm. which I mean, if, if he was really the Messiah, that's like some easy symbolism right there. That's actually really good. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, when you've got a new Messiah, you also preach the overthrow of all the worldly governments. So the, the local sultan, not a big fan either. So the sultan offered Svi three options. He could allow dozens of archers to shoot at him to prove his divinity if he survived, or he could die by being impaled, or he could convert to Islam. Those are your three choices. Yeah. Uh, Tzvi took door number three. A lot of his followers were disillusioned. Some still believe that it was part of a grander plan. There are still, to this day, somewhere between one and 400,000 Sabbateans in contemporary Turkey. And while it's not entirely clear what they do... It is generally thought that they live outwardly as Muslims in, in the day-to-day, -day, but privately in their own homes have their own specific flavor of Jewish mysticism that is the, the true faith. Yeah. 
these are this is a fascinating sect of people. This is me, the guy who's really interested in minority sects of mainstream religions. Yeah. Yes. So thank you very much, One Fine Cat. Final Gamer uh, writes in, or shares a story of some bizarre spiritualism uh, from their country. Ooh. Uh, so they uh, share about Helen Duncan, the last person in the United Kingdom to be sentenced for the crime of witchcraft in 1944. Helen was born in 1897 and claimed to have psychic powers since she was seven. Uh, she moved to Dundee, uh, which is Final Gamer's home city, uh, after being disgraced for having a child out of wedlock. She married, continued to grow her family, and started doing psychic readings along with seances as a small business, and did really well uh, due to World War I causing a huge uprising uh, of the spiritual movement. Mm-hmm. So when, when World War II came... Uh, in 1944, while on tour uh, in Portsmouth, England, uh, she claimed to have contra- or contacted a sailor who died on the battleship HMS Barham, which was destroyed by Germans on November 25th, and 841 other soldiers died as well. Now, the mother of the sailor went to contact the war office to confirm that this was true, they had never released any information about the sinking in order to keep up morale. Ah. So the fact that a civilian somehow learned this, they were like, oh my gosh, you're a spy. Mm-hmm. They contacted Helen Duncan, who was like, no, I had a seance. And they're like, uh-uh, we're arresting you for conspiracy to defraud. Mm-hmm. So then they added in Section 4 of the 1735 Witchcraft Act, which <laughs> prohibits those who use any kind of witchcraft, sorcery, enchantments, etc. to, like, not do any, like, occult or nope. crafty science. Like, don't, don't no do this. No spookums. Don't do spookums. Okay. During the trial, the prosecution was trying to prove Helen as an imposter who could not conjure spirits. Her defense came in the form of several respectable clients, such as an RAF wing commander who testified to seeing his dead mother. And eventually the charges for conspiracy were dropped, but she was prosecuted for witchcraft because, you know, she made this thing public Mm -hmm. that was secret and that, that that's bad. You used your witchcraft bad. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so she was jailed for nine months Mostly so she wouldn't Probably talk about any of this And then in 1951 uh, The Witchcraft Act Was repealed and replaced With the Fraudulent Mediums Act Which was then repealed in 2008. What's going to protect us From fraudulent mediums? I don't know, but still no one knows How she found all this out You know how you uh, stop a fraudulent medium? Hmm. Proper fitting Measuring tape. That's how you stop a fraudulent medium. So thank you, uh, Final Gamer. Thanks, Final Gamer. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. We do enjoy reading your letters. And where can those go, dear? Podcast at gmail.com. And we would love to get letters with your stories, your questions, your corrections, uh, the occasional show suggestion. uh, Animal pictures! And absolutely. Especially if he's a sweet little puppy with a little tiny goblet. Huh? Or oh a kitty that's all like, look at my belly. Oh, got both of those this episode. It was a good day. They were lovely. But we also want to hear your uh, responses to our regular prompts. Darling. Yeah? 
What would you like to hear about for our next episode? Uh, I would like to hear about your favorite thing that did not go as planned. Oh, that's a vague one. Yeah. That's a, people are going to get broad with it. And again, those can go to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media. Yeah, Twitter, yeah. Instagram, yeah. Facebook. Oh, that, those, those are the ones, huh? Some we use more than others, but they're all at History Honeys. Uh-huh. I'll probably... Maybe, we'll, we'll probably maybe post some pictures. Yeah, you've got a lot of pictures of things we talked about on this episode. Yeah. That are suddenly very relevant to our show Instagram. Yeah. 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 But while you're out there, you can also give us a, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever else you feel like it. We do absolutely love reading those. And uh, it, it's a great piece of feedback that uh, hel- helps us know what's what. Yeah. Yeah. You can also tell a friend. Tell your barista. Tell your fellow Renaissance fairgoers. Yes. Or employees in some cases. Or case. employees. I don't mm-hmm. know. Tell people. Did you know that the inventor of the Cool Ranch Dorito works at a Renaissance fair? He does. Beginning this year? He does. We know him personally. <laughs> The Renaissance Fair we went to makes really good cheese. Deep fried cheese, I should say. Oh, the cheese fritters. The cheese fritters. Oh, my God. It is in Wisconsin. It's appropriate to this episode. It's It's in Kenosha area. (laughs) Freaking cheese fritters. I want those. If only I didn't have to pay $25 to get in. (laughs) I'd be there every weekend. Just go slightly up the road and get the Cheese Castle's deep fried cheese curds. Could could we just get our uh, inventor of Cool Ranch Doritos to just like walk them out to the road? Be like, pick me up some cheese fritters. I'm coming by. You could have to smuggle us fritters. It's not really smuggling. Like, he can walk out with them. They're not going to stop him. It's just, I don't. Be like, I'll be in the free parking lot. (laughs) Oh, so we're also going to make him walk half a mile. (laughs) He might park in the free parking lot. All right, we're, we're going to go plan our fritter heist. <laughs> so it's time to go. I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey. And cheese fritters. Cheese fritters.